How many of these have you done? Oh, so many. Like, we've been doing this since summer of 2016. What's the so, most interesting one you've done? Um, mm, that's tough. He um, didn't give you grades anymore, so. Yeah, that's, that's right. This one. He got an easy. Uh, this got one, this one's going to be the most interesting. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. But, um, Hello and welcome to Peach Pod. I am your host Luke Boggs, and I am uh, very excited to be joined by uh, Congressman John Barrow, former Congressman John Barrow. So thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Luke. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, we've been trying to put this together for a while, so I'm happy uh, happy we could do it. Last time we've uh, had a conversation this long was me bugging you in your office when you taught uh, political polarization at UGA for a year. That was the best year I've ever had in politics. Was teaching at the University of Georgia. It was a blast, and I'm. I'm Flattered, I'm flattering myself. I had a full teaching load. I didn't have any publishing responsibilities, but I got a chance to write a few things that I enjoyed. But I really enjoyed my time with the students. It was a great experience. Yeah, I, I've I've been interested to see that a lot of the themes that you brought up in that class have actually reflected your campaign as well, and that uh, political polarization is a real problem in our politics, and it definitely is affecting Georgia. And you've brought that up on the campaign trail a lot. So, wh- why is that the issue that you have brought up in this campaign for Secretary of State so much? Well, I think that the polarization uh, in our country is both a a, uh, a cause and a and an effect of um, serious problems that are making it hard for us to govern ourselves as a, as a republic. There's so many things, so many ways in which the polarization in between our leaders and between our, uh, within our electorate is making it hard for us to do the things that a vast majority of folks want us to do. I'm convinced from my experience in Congress that there is a bipartisan majority in Congress that's willing to do things if they're given a chance. It'd be probably more accurate to say they'd be willing to do all kinds of important things if they were forced to vote on the things that really mattered. But uh, our politics is so constipated and so backed up and so stopped up as a result of things that partisan majorities are doing within their their caucuses to try and frustrate popular initiatives that um, that's what's really keeping us from getting the kind of public policy that a lot of people want. So there are things that are that they're, they're underlying cause of this. Gerrymandering is a big part of that. Uh, the advent or the, or the reintroduction of big money into politics, it was effectively outlawed by the McCain-Feingold law uh, that Russ Feingold and, and John McCain shepherded through the Congress and George Bush signed into law. It was uh, the, the big money, uh, the, the gerrymandering, these are some of the main things that are making it impossible for us to get the kind of uh, representation that we, that we really need and I think that we want in our legislative assemblies, whether it's at the state level or the federal level. So I think these are the things that are causing us the most trouble that I think we can do, the, that we can actually do something about. Yeah. So with that, you know, you're running for Secretary of State, not Congress. And so you're not going to be able to present any legislation or pass anything that could directly help that um, as Secretary of State. So what, what things would you want to do as Secretary of State to help combat those issues that you well, just Well, first off, out? I want to... F- I want to work with folks on both sides of the uh, ideological spectrum to try and find ways in which we can conduct our elections in which both sides have some confidence in the outcome. There's a lot of 
of uh, anxiety and a lot of partisan angst about how we conduct our elections. Each side of the political divide thinks the other is more like the New England Patriots than anything else, you know, trying to fudge here and there in small little subtle ways that get blown out of out of proportion by the by the partisan uh, partisanship. I, I think that if we can address that issue, we can do a lot of things to try and bring some confidence back into our politics. But the thing I think that most folks miss sight of, Secretary of State does not have a direct role in dealing with the two big problems in our politics today. Gerrymandering, the fact that we have very representative representatives who do a very good job of representing unrepresentative districts on the one hand, and big money, which makes it uh, impossible for ordinary people to compete in, in the marketplace of ideas with just you know their their individual ability and their talent, we, big money is just drowning out everything. And it's interesting that big money was sort of the the impact the way we dealt with it effectively, and the way we'd basically let it back into the game effectively marked the two bookends of my time in Congress. I could not have been elected to Congress in 2004 if it wasn't for the McCain-Feingold law that made it possible for someone like me and my friends to raise enough resources to compete effectively with my opponent and his friends, neither side was able to drown the other out. We had a very thorough, very vigorous debate in both our initial election and in our rematch. Money was not the problem, but money was the problem by the time I left Congress because um, while McCain-Feingold made it possible for virtually anybody uh, who who had uh, enough support to be able to compete in, a, in a, almost anywhere, the repeal of McCain-Feingold, the judicial repeal, the line of decisions that the Supreme Court handed down that began with the Swift Boat case and ended in Citizens United, they made it virtually impossible for anybody to, to compete in a genuinely competitive election. The only folks who can compete in a competitive election at the end of my time in Congress were the super PACs. And that just, in that 10 years, um, the effect of big money was huge. I believe that gerrymandering reform, fixing what's broke with our, with our representative districts, could have a very positive impact on the problem of big money in politics. It won't make the problem go away, but it will greatly reduce the size of the problem. If you had, for example, in our Congress, we have 435 seats. Right now you have you know, maybe 20 to 25 that are genuinely competitive year in and year out. There may be more this time because of what's going on right now, but as a general rule, uh, there are very few competitive districts left. Big money has a disproportionate impact in a very small number of districts. But if you had, instead of two, instead of 20 uh, competitive districts, if you had 300 out of 435, it would have a huge impact on the problem of big money because the big money would have to, you know, would be much more diffuse and spread out. Its impact would be greatly reduced if there was such a large field of play. We could restore, we could restore the ability of local candidates running on local uh, support from their friends to basically compete on a, on a more or less level playing field. Again, we're not talking about the ability to get more votes. We're just talking about the ability to be heard at election times, like trying a case and not being able to make your, your closing argument to the jury because of the, the, the noise that's being pumped into the courtroom. If we could just take that away, we, it would be a lot easier for folks to compete. It would be a lot harder for big money to dominate the scene. We'd also have a whole lot more representatives who represent the political center in our politics, which we don't have right now. So in lots of ways, 
those things are the main problems. The Secretary of State's office can actually have, a, I think, a positive impact on the gerrymandering side of things, not because the Secretary of State has a seat at the table when it comes to drawing these districts, but because the Secretary of State will have a seat in the courtroom where these issues are going to be litigated and decided in the final analysis. And if we had a Secretary of State who understood both how partisan gerrymandering basically disenfranchises people on the basis of their politics, how it effectively wastes everybody's vote in most districts. It wastes the votes of folks in the majority in their district because individually their votes aren't needed because they're, they're, their vote's more than necessary. They're not needed in a Baker majority. But if, if for the minority in all these districts, you, your votes are wasted because you never can amount to enough. If we could point out to the courts how partisan gerrymandering effectively disenfranchises the political center in this country, makes everybody's votes in general elections and the vast majority of elections sort of pointless, how it violates the constitutional right not to be discriminated against on the basis of your politics, and also point to how the scholarship has, sh has shown that it's transforming our legislative assemblies into bodies where the checks and balances system we got literally makes it impossible for anybody to get anything done. I think we could greatly solve the gerrymandering problem. We could guide the courts toward a remedy that can that can effectively stop the gerrymandering, create more competitive districts. And competitive districts will not only bring the center back into our politics, it'll also make it harder for big money to dominate. Because again, the more districts that are in play, um, a given amount of money is going to have a less, of it, less of an impact on a much larger field of play than it would on a very small, concentrated field of play, which is what we got right now. Yeah, and that's it's interesting that that's the the frame that you give it because I remember when you announced for Secretary of State, a lot of my uh, friends were surprised because they thought you were going to probably like run for Attorney General or something like that if you were going to run at all. And I was not surprised since I had your class and you talked about these issues a lot. And I um, agree with you that Secretary of State is a good place to bring up those issues just because you are the principal state officer that deals with elections and that you would be as part uh, part of those. Uh, uh, cases and um, being a the attorney general's got to have a client right. take a position. You got to defend the client's position. The secretary of state's the only person in our constitutional system who's elected with the primary responsibility of trying to make sure that our elections are fair. And there are lots of ways in which our elections aren't fair. Uh, they aren't fair to anybody when the when the outcome's not in doubt because the district's been gerrymandered in such a fashion that everybody's votes pretty much been hogtied. They're not fair when money uh, can dominate uh, the ability of folks to get get their message out through their friends and neighbors. They're not fair in lots of ways in which uh, districts are so uncompetitive, like in Georgia, for example, that some 80% of the legislative seats are uncontested in the general election. That's an appalling um, indictment of the, of the current system. And it's not because Democrats in Republican districts are lazy and no count. And it's not because Republicans in Democratic districts are lazy and no count. It's because folks on both sides of the uh, of the, of the political spectrum recognize it's pointless to compete in some of these districts at the general election level because the fix is in. The district has been rigged in order to dictate the outcome of the election. So the only competition that takes place in our politics today is in these primaries where the most partisan voters are showing up and where the candidates have every incentive to become even more partisan uh, than, than their districts. So you got districts that are more partisan than the states that they're cut out of and you got the representatives of those districts who are more partisan than their districts. That's really sort of the, 
the miracle of compound interest on steroids when it comes to dysfunctional politics. Yeah, for for sure. And uh, you know, being a law student, I, I'm curious. It, it sounds like you are a fan of the uh, formula that was presented in the recent Supreme Court cases of the wasted vote formula. Is that a way to? That's a way of describing the problem. Yeah. Uh, the, the the art and the game of what you, or, or the or the science of gerrymandering is very simple. You want to waste more of the other side's votes than you waste of your own. And you do that by spreading your voters around in in comfortable and reliable majorities. As small a majority as is necessary to be really reliable in the largest number of districts possible. And you concentrate the other team's voters in the largest possible majorities in the smallest number of districts possible. And that way, you waste the other side's votes at a greater rate than you waste your own. The wasted vote is the vote that you don't need in order to make a majority. What I contend is in this day of polarization, virtually everybody's votes are wasted. The majority party's votes, voters' votes are wasted, and same with the minority. If people are so polarized that we, and you're all in a district that the outcome of the, of the general election is not in doubt, even in a close district, a 52-48 district, Virtually everybody's vote there is wasted because there's no doubt as to the outcome. If you're in the 52% majority, you may be happy that you're in the majority, but you can't decide the election by changing your vote because there are enough people in that 2% margin that are going to hang tight and make sure that that, that election is going to come out the way that district was designed to perform. So I, I look at this not in terms of, of, of which side wastes more. That's, that's certainly the game that the two teams play against each other. I'm looking at it from the voters' perspective. Everybody's vote is wasted if every, if everybody lives in a district where the general election outcome is not in doubt. The only time that people really are empowered as individual voters is in a district where it's really up for grabs, where it can go either way. And that means trying to take away the partisan advantage as much as possible. That would empower the individual voters on both sides of the spectrum, but it also empower voters in the middle, the people who have no virtually no vote now because they don't vote in primaries and they have a decided preference for the lesser of two evils in the general. Those voters would actually have the balance of power in politics if we had genuinely competitive districts. So I look at this in terms of not which side is being having his votes wasted, everybody's votes wasted in terms of the individual voter's ability to affect the outcome of an election. I go to the polls hoping that my vote will make a difference. Most folks know that it won't. We can design our districts so that everybody has a greater chance of their vote actually being the difference maker. Nobody's used to that in this country. Everybody ought to have an opportunity, though, to do that. And I think that's the, I think that's the way out of the of the uh, what they call what the courts call the political thicket, the gerrymandering problem. How can we design districts that that where where how can the courts clean up this problem without becoming the new gerrymanderers themselves? I think the answer to that is for the courts to say, look, we're not going to draw the districts. We don't care how you draw them. We're just going to insist that they be as competitive as possible. It's kind of hard to argue with competition. That's the, that's the key to our free enterprise system. Uh, I think that's the, that's the solution to, to partisan polarization in a, in a polarized era, is to make districts as, as competitive as possible. Democrats in Democratic districts may not like that, but their votes will count. Their individual votes will count for a change. And more importantly, the political center will have an opportunity to weigh in on elections and actually decide who's going to be uh, who's going to be our representatives. That's something we re- we really need badly. 
Yeah, I, I'm uh, curious because I've, I've heard you bring this up before. I remember you bringing it up in our class, and you know, one one of the things um, to combat gerrymandering that other states have done, like Iowa and Florida and North Carolina, is like focus on the um, traditional redistricting principles of like compactness and you know communities of interest and all that kind of stuff and and uh also i'm in a election law right now and we've been talking about the voting rights act and how you have to comply with section two and all that kind of stuff and so i'm, I'm curious like where do you put competitiveness on like those other rankings because like would you you know because a, a big complaint of you know, we can talk about your former districts where, you, mm-hmm. had, you know, when you got elected, you had a district that went from Athens to Augusta to Savannah. It was a pretty sprawled out district. And so um, would you would you put competitiveness above um, uh, compactness and like in a way where you could see a district like your old district again? Or is that just one of the things near the top of the list, but not at the top? I would say that art of traditional uh redistricting criteria no longer have nearly as much importance when every other tradition has gone by the board. Right. It used to be the tradition that folks would split their ballots. It used to be the tradition that people were all jumbled up in terms of where they lived. Back in the 1970s, the 1976 election for president, for example, was the high watermark of political neighborhood integration in this country. That's a fancy way of saying that that was the election in which, starting from World War II and Depression-era times, the voters got more and more mixed up in terms of who they lived with, right next door to each other. There was a greater degree of likelihood that you lived next door to someone who voted differently than you did in the 1976 presidential election than at any time before or at any time since. What had happened leading up to that point was the great explosion in the middle class and the material prosperity that came from the great post-war boom made it possible for people to move a lot more for a lot of reasons, and people did move, but they became more politically integrated as they did. In the 1920s and 1930s, folks were born into communities and and political communities that were highly segregated politically. I mean, you lived and were born and worked and spent the rest, spent your whole life, people who pretty much saw the same things the way you did, but that things actually began to mix themselves up in the 50s and 60s, and, and Jimmy Carter's and Gerald Ford's election in 76 was the high watermark of people actually living in a, in a politically integrated neighborhood. But then they started to pull apart. The same prosperity that brought people together started to split them apart as people began to take the material prosperity and use that to choose lifestyles and places that they live that would be very segregated politically. So people now are living with people who think like them, shop like them, worship like them, and vote like them. All of which is to say the traditions that we used to have, individual voters splitting their ticket, voters with different political persuasions living in close proximity to each other used to make it hard for gerrymandering to do it to do its tricks, but now it's a whole lot easier. So for us to hearken back to those traditional uh, redistricting criteria, those apply when some other very big traditions were offsetting. But we have to deal with the new traditions of people living in like-minded uh, voting enclaves where people you know, uh, live and worship and shop and vote with people who are a lot like them. So compactness, you'll find, uh, is, is not all it's cracked up to be because it can still leave us with a lot of gerrymandering. People have gerrymandered themselves is what I'm getting at. Right. There's a lot of what... what the big sort, as you, you had us read. The big sort, exactly. This You might call this de facto gerrymandering as opposed to the fancy legal word de jure gerrymandering. De jure ger- gerrymandering is when you do it by law. 
Well, how people are doing it themselves. We're, we're, we're segregating ourselves, politically speaking. The good news is, is that if it's your desire to make a competitive district, if that's your goal, to make districts as competitive as they are, because that's the way in which everybody's individual vote is empowered to the greatest extent possible. And the least number of people's votes are wasted no matter what side of the political spectrum they are, no matter where they live. If competitiveness is your goal, we actually can make some pretty good-looking districts. I mean, you can have a machine that's just going to do it, wheel it out in terms of concentric circles and compactness and whatnot. But those can be, if you, if you leave that alone and don't look at the results, they can, be, they can be wildly competitive or wildly uncompetitive. But if competition is what you want to inject into our process, and I think that's what we need to do, you can actually make districts that look pretty good. They're pretty attractive, pretty compact. The Pennsylvania case is a pretty good example. That state was gerrymandered to a fare thee well. But when the state Supreme Court said, we're going to insist that there be less gerrymandering in this state, and they, and, and they approved a plan come up with by special masters, they had districts that allocated or divvied up the political spoils in a much more equitable fashion. And the districts weren't nearly as crazy looking as they, as, as they might have been done by a machine. I mean, the point is, pretty is as pretty does. And if you want a pretty map, uh, it's got to be pretty in terms of how it allows individual voters to have the maximum impact in the elections they get to vote in. And once you make competitiveness the standard, I guarantee you, you can make maps that are both competitive and pretty. We've been talking about elections a lot, and one of the things that a lot of our listeners and just people I talk to are concerned about is uh, the recent case where uh, Brian Kemp's Secretary of State's office really got dragged through the coals on how unsecure our current voting system is and the machines that we're using. And so um, a lot of times people are you know, saying we should return to a paper ballot system, but that means about like 10,000 different things. And so I was curious, like, when you, because I, I imagine you are also unhappy with our current voting system, what system would you like to see us put in place? Well, first off, there's no excuse for us having gone as long as we have with the vulnerabilities that have been identified long before this litigation uh, came to a head. The judge uh, was, was very clear in her decision that the problems with our system are not fanciful. Uh, they're not the product of paranoia. There are real vulnerabilities associated with using this 16-year-old machinery that hasn't been upgraded or updated by the software uh, manufacturers for upwards of 10 years now. It's a serious problem. Yes, it, it is true they cannot be affected in ways that the secretary is denying, is claiming, but they can be affected in many other ways that we have learned and come to appreciate, and that's been demonstrated to the satisfaction of the court. I don't think it should be thought about in terms of going back to paper ballots, because the, the way, as you point out, there's a million and one ways in which you can use paper, and a lot of these are prone to abuse. They're prone to election official abuse, stuff in ballots that, that, that aren't, that, that can be easily generated. Um, you know, after the election is over, when you know how many, there are lots of, but the rest of the country has long since surpassed us in terms of marrying the old and the new. The kind of paper ballots that folks are using these days cannot be counterfeited. Uh, they can be tracked through the election process before they are um, determined to be uh, the accurate vote of, of a registered voter and then deposited into the, into, the, into the mix to be counted. There are lots of ways in which, in the, under the, in the old days, you could mess around with paper ballots, but Eighty percent of the people in the country now are doing a, a, a new and improved way of doing this with paper ballots that can't be counterfeited, protocols that prevent them from being abused and mutilated by election officials or by partisans to make sure that the paper ballot isn't altered in some way. 
by human hands in much the same way that in, in, in the way in which we're worried about them being altered electronically by hands that can't be seen and in ways that can't be you know verified by by anybody. So we don't want to we don't want to create it go back to an old vulnerability in order to get away from new vulnerabilities. What we need to do is recognize that there are, the best way to do this is a marriage of old and new hand-marked paper ballots uh, and optical scanners which can perform virtually all of the, 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 the beneficial functions of current voting machines, for example, helping to prevent you from making a mistake in how you cast your votes to make your, to make your vote casting look ambiguous, for example, if you're marking your ballot the wrong way so that anybody looking at it would be confused as to what you intend. The machines can help people do this before their votes are cast. This way the voter has a ballot they can look at that meets their approval, but the machine will give it a sort of a, a preview. Uh, it'll, pre it'll screen it and scan it to make sure that you haven't made some obvious mistake that's going to make your intent you know, uh, unclear to somebody else. Maybe right. clear to you what you intend, but if you express it in ways that are unclear to others, that can be a problem like they had in Florida with you know, dimple chads and things like that. And so. The way they're doing it now, all around the country, is they're using optical scanners to to enhance the voting experience, to help the voter avoid making the common mistakes that voters sometimes make, skipping an election by accident, or voting twice, or or maybe voting two different ways in the same election, and, and you're not sure which is the the way you intend, which is the one you intend to vote for, and which is the one you intend to vote against. I mean, there are lots of ways in which paper ballots have been used in the past that have created problems that these. New scanners will help weed out, and this is done before the vote is cast, and that helps everybody. So I think the best way to do this is paper ballots that provide a, a written record of what the voter intended that we know meets the, 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 the standards of how to express that intent insofar as technology is able to weed it out, and it's something that can be counted by the election officials with representatives of the two parties if there's ever any need to. It can be counted and recounted. You can't say that about the votes we're casting on these digital uh, recording electronic devices. Those are ballots that literally cannot be read by the voter. They cannot be counted by election officials, much less recounted. you got to take it on faith. And that's just not good enough for democracy. It may be good enough for almost any transaction that can be undone, like a credit card transaction or an initial public offering. I mean, you name it. Virtually anything else in our society is something we can have a do-over with if it just involves money. Our votes are too precious for us to entrust to a medium where the voter can't see what he's, what he's casting and nobody can count uh, what he's casting. That's just not good enough. Yeah, and I'm ha happy to hear that there are some good solutions out there because the, the current ahead of us, yeah. all, all across the country, uh, they, they, they've, they've left us in the shade. I mean, when we went first in 2002, I think we deserve credit for addressing the problems in Florida before anybody else. And we did it with our own money. We didn't wait for federal, the federal government to you know, give us the money to do it. I'm very proud of the fact that Georgia went out front. The problem is when you're a pioneer, when you're the first to do something, You've got to keep working at it in order to stay out front, or you'll very quickly find yourself in the rear of the pack. And that's exactly where Georgia is. We are in the rear of the pack because we haven't done anything uh, to change our method of voting since the, the machines we bought in 2002. Yeah. Well, the Secretary of State's job is pretty big, and you know we've basically only hit one aspect of it. So what, what other uh, aspects of the job are you really uh, looking forward to getting your your hands in and they think are important? Well, the two aspects of this job that I think are real important to, to the business community, this, this office is really best thought of as a, a constituent services agency for the business community. 
I mean, more than any other agency of state government, this is the one that the business community interacts with on, 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 a, on a more frequent basis, on a daily basis. For example, there are 700,000 registered professionals who depend on that office every day for the license they've got to have in order to practice their profession. And this involves you know, some obscure professions like being a professional auctioneer, but it involves some pretty basic and, and important professions like nursing, uh, optometry, uh, psychology, architects, engineers. These are people for whom the licensing responsibility is genuinely vested with a public interest. There's a very real public safety component in making sure that nobody is practicing this profession unless they meet the minimum standards and making sure that anybody who you know, has forfeited the right to practice that profession is, is weeded out and culled from, culled from the herd to protect the public from folks who um, really no longer meet the professional standards. So there are 700,000 families that depend on this office for their livelihood, 700,000 small businesses that depend on this office every day. The business community as a whole depends on this office for business formation and registration purposes. The corporations division has exclusive jurisdiction over the formation of business entities in the state and, and their registration in order to do business. And that's something that's hugely important to the business community and especially the small business community. They're the ones who have the least resources. They don't have, you know, whole big departments full of lawyers and, 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 and paralegals who do this stuff. They've got to deal with the office directly as a small business person, and they need to have one that's functioning efficiently and, and, and is user-friendly. And you can't say that about the way things are right now. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done in, in those areas. There are a couple of other areas that are, that are even less uh, well-known than the corporations and professional licensure division. Secretary of State has responsibility for regulating all securities that are offered for sale in this state that are not governed by the federal law, by the, by the, by the SEC. And there are very high thresholds that have to be met before any securities that you're offering has to be run in compliance with the, with the federal law. And so that means there's a large field of play for securities offerings in this state that are outside the scope of federal regulation and therefore subject to the scope of, subject to the regulation of the Secretary of State. These opportunities are, this is a rich and fertile field for fraud and scam artists to operate. It's not the case that everybody who does this is engaged in fraud, but it is a tremendously ripe field. If you're outside the scope of federal regulation, you got to have a state watchdog that's on the job because this is a, a, an area where lots of people get taken advantage of in the bogus or fraudulent or unregulated securities market. Lot, any, a security is almost anything that someone can invest in. And there's lots of, if you, if you don't bother to register your security, it's a real red flag that you're probably fixing to take advantage of somebody because that's the reason you're avoiding the, the registration. So you can do this without anybody knowing what you're doing. It's, it's a big problem for our seniors, especially. The potential for elder abuse in, in securities scams is tremendous. So that's an area of responsibility that's and the Secretary of State's office has been starved of the resources necessary to do that job. And that's, now the irony is, is that's one area of the department that pretty much pays for itself. If you've got a good securities department working there, they're gonna raise the resources to prosecute bad guys out of the fines and penalties you collect from the bad guys. So this is one that really is, is, should be a no-brainer, but that's an area where we're not doing as much as we used to. Also, charitable 
organizations are regulated by the Secretary of State. And with, with all the good that a lot of good charities are doing, you'd be surprised how much fraud there is in the charities field. I mean, people are raising money for all kinds of good purposes, and it's not going to the purposes for which it's been raised. It's amazing how much that's going on. Yeah. Secretary of State's office has responsibility for that as well. These are some of the things that, that are very important to protect the public from con artists and, and scammers. It's, it's an area that's important to those people. But the parts that we most all participate in, uh, the electoral, the election part, uh, the licensure part, the corporation part, those are the parts that have the highest visibility in what the office does. Yeah. And the reason I, I bring that up, and it's just a, a curiosity of this conversation that I've noticed, is that uh, many of the other conversations I have with people running for office this time uh, are very partisan in that they're very uh, aggressively anti-Trump or aggressively for something. And I, I've just been fascinated by this conversation in the sense that you are very focused on the job itself and what you want to do in the job and I find that unique in this time and so I just wanted to you know give you I've given you uh, specific questions and gotten very open answers so I imagine giving you an open a question is a very scary place to go um, but uh, like why, why are you running in this time where it seems like the instinct of everyone else running for office is to be as partisan as possible and to like hit the other side as hard as they can and you're approaching it pretty much the polar opposite way and I'm just curious about that. Well first off, no one's going to be able to fix what's broke with this office unless they have a bipartisan approach uh, because the things that are affecting this office uh, are going to require uh, some give and take and you're not going to get that from, from one party cronyism and you're not going to get it from someone who's, who's throwing throwing bombs or using a flamethrower. It's going to require people who can work together with folks no matter what their differences are. And I have demonstrated an ability to do that that nobody else on the statewide ballot, I think, on either side has, has done. I've had to do that. I, I feel blessed to have learned how to do that at the local level, which I think is a good training ground for folks who want to engage in, in bipartisan politics. Run for city council, run for county commissioner. Uh, you'll, you'll find uh, that when there's no mediator between you and the folks on the other side of the, of the dais or the table or the room, that, that you'll, you'll learn how to work with people even when you thought it was impossible. That's a very difficult lesson to learn in our state legislatures today, and it's a very difficult lesson to learn in, in our National Assembly. But I had that, I had that background. But I, working with people on both sides of the, of the aisle is not only what we're supposed to do, it's also the only way to get anything done. I mean, nothing really meaningful is going to be done if it's genuinely partisan. I mean, it, it may scratch somebody's itch, but it's not going to stand the test of time. It's not going to address, it, it's not going to be the cure for what ails us in any area. The Secretary of State's office is also the one office where I think folks expect bipartisanship more than anything else. It's the least partisan job in terms of its, its book of business, if you will. It's the least partisan job in terms of what folks are looking for from the office. There's no Republican way to, to, to run a... a, a, a a platform that helps the business community register corporations as easily here as they do elsewhere. That, that's a competence issue. That's not a partisan issue. And so it really ought to be a matter of how to do it best, not how to do it in some way that helps my team or your team. And frankly, you're not going to get that from folks who are approaching the job from an entirely partisan point of view. You're going to get something that's going to be framed in terms of what's good for the, for the team that you're playing on, and that's not good for the business community, which in Georgia at least expect something better than that. In Georgia, they, the business community expects that the business of, of state government ought to be about business. Not, not getting any old business. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm sure that will be a welcome change from our current Secretary of State, our outgoing one. But We're yeah. going to have a change. 
This is the first. This is the first time that the voters will have had an opportunity to elect a Secretary of State of their choosing, literally in 12 years. The last two general elections for this office were wave elections that were dominated by the politics someplace else, and there were there were elections in which there was an incumbent who was riding a partisan wave. Uh, you can't say that about now. This is an open seat, and Georgia is more competitive. And competition will do either one of two things. It'll give each side the opportunity to be equally obnoxious and equally partisan, or it'll give one side the opportunity to, to play it smart and to promote somebody who has some genuine bipartisan chops. And if you do that, you ought to win, no matter uh, how you're conducting yourself in other elections elsewhere. Yeah. So uh, how I traditionally like to end these conversations is I like to do what I call flipping the table and have you ask me a question and you know about whatever <laughs> you want. So just then see, see where it goes. Well, what do you think is the best way to promote uh, to, 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 to a little healing in our land? What's the best way you think we can get ourselves out of the partisan ditch that we're in where um, everybody looks at the same spectacle and draws two completely different uh, pictures? What's the best way to solve the problem of polarization? That's the issue that's brought us together. Yes. When I was... A fellow student, along with you, studying this issue and leading our class in uh, a discussion of the issue. What lessons have you taken away since then, and what what do you think is would be the most most important thing we can do to try and um, heal our land? Yeah, I think it's a two pronged approach. I think the there's definitely some necessary reform needed on the like legal side of things of like gerrymandering reform in some you know fashion, uh, financial reform in some fashion. But I think it also has to be combined with a genuine willingness to actually engage the other side because so much of what I've seen from uh, some of the campaigns this year and just people in like everyday life is there's a uh, lack of willingness to engage with the other side and there's a lot of effort to demonize them and to not try to genuinely see their perspective uh, because there's there's a reason why like messages from like Donald Trump or more extreme politicians on either side like are appealing to people and a lot of times what I see is people failing to engage with like the whys behind those messages resonating and I think you have to combine both um, because if you just reform I think the system will find a way to you know uh, grow its own malignancy again in, mm-hmm. in, in any form and you know because the, the thing that's um, fascinating to me uh, you know with the uh, history of the United States politics and reform is that like it, it temporarily really helps things but then eventually it sort of you know, breaks bag again. And so I think there's a, a real need for engagement with uh, everyone. And while um, you can stand up for your values and not compromise on those, uh, I think trying to engage the other side with your values and not just like try to push your policy on them is, is probably needed this time. That's, that's just my perspective. Well, that's a pretty good perspective. Atticus Fancy don't really know somebody unless you've walked around in their in their in their shoes for a while, and um, I don't think you can really engage somebody politically unless at the beginning of a discussion you can do a better job of explaining their position than they can. Yes. If you can state if you can state their position better than they can, it's a good starting point. Not many people know how to do that. Yeah. I can say that having had something like four hundred town hall meetings, open town hall meetings as a member of the most partisan legislature in the country during some of the most polarized times in the last century, that I've had lots of opportunities to engage people 
in, in that way. And the one thing that I'm most proud of is I never had a town hall meeting where I didn't leave with more friends than I began it with. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully uh, we can have some more uh, public servants like yourself that uh, see it that way and try to engage with uh, those uh, folks that came in wanting to disagree with you. But I uh, appreciate you taking time to do this. It was a fun conversation, and I uh, wish you luck on the trail. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.